Father, thank you for these verses and the wonderful revelation they give us of your son as he seeks the lost to save them. There are no other, um, these parables recorded no place else, Lord, so I think they give us a very unique window into Christ's heart and in your heart in sending your son and in your, uh, in the heart of your son and being willing to be sent to seek and to save the lost. So I pray that I could do justice not just to this beautiful parable, but to the others that follow. And I pray that it would do the work in preparing us for the exchange that Pastor Nathan mentioned. I'd like to think providentially we have reached some verses that are preparing us <clears throat> to be uh, better at sharing the gospel with others and having the same heart for the loss that Christ had, Lord. I thank you for this time. Pray that you can be pleased by it and worship through it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. All right, the title of this morning's sermon is To Seek and to Save the Lost. To Seek and to Save the Lost. The religious leaders in Jesus' day, they divided people into two groups. And you can guess which of these groups they thought they were in. They saw people as being clean and unclean. They saw people as being righteous and unrighteous. And they put themselves in the group of clean people or righteous people. And so they wanted to live really as separately as much as possible from those that they thought were unclean because then they could affect their cleanness or they want to stay as far from possible as those that they thought were unrighteous because it could cause some of that could could rub off on them as we kind of talked about in some of the previous sermons <clears throat> it went so far that many of the religious leaders who were the most responsible with teaching god's law were would not teach God's law with those pe- to those people that they thought were the most sinful. I was pretty, I'd never heard that before. I was particularly surprised to learn that this past week, that they wanted such separation from those people that they thought were particularly sinful, that they wouldn't even preach to them. And the reason that I thought that that was so sad is that if they thought that these people were as bad as they thought they were, then that's really evidence that those people needed what? needed to hear the word or needed, the, needed to be preached to. A couple of quotes. Leon Morris said, some rabbis in Jesus's day took this idea, the idea of separation, so seriously that they refused to even teach people that they thought were unclean and unrighteous. Paul Billerbeck wrote, let not a man associate with the wicked, not even to bring him the law. So this led, with that understanding, you can see why they bring this criticism against Jesus in verse 2. They said that this man, referring to Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus responds to this accusation by preaching these three parables only in Luke's gospel, um, some of the, I mean, this makes it one of the most beloved chapters to, to people in all of scripture. And we're going to begin looking at the first parable. But first, remember in Luke 19.10, Jesus said of himself, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And we probably don't see that heart behind the father sending the son and then the son seeking and saving the lost any better than in these parables we'll be looking at over the following weeks. Look only at verse 2, or verse 3. So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, he does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost 
until he finds it. So Jesus is willing to leave 99 to pursue one. Now just be honest for a moment. I mean, I don't think that you necessarily have to be a shepherd to consider the wisdom or perhaps foolishness of this decision. Does it seem wise or does it seem foolish to leave 99 for one? It doesn't really make sense. It seems foolish, doesn't it? And there are really two possibilities with this. And it's actually debatable. I mean, there are commentaries that kind of commentators, excuse me, who kind of wrestle through this, wondering about the absurdity or legitimacy of a shepherd being willing to do this. And there's two views, two possibilities. One of the possibilities is logical, and one of the possibilities is illogical. So let's talk about the logical possibility. This would be an analogy that we we could understand better than shepherding. A man goes camping with his family, and let's say that this man is like some of the fathers in this church, and he has numerous children. And so they go on a hike, and then they return to their campsite, and the father kind of looks around, and he counts his children, and he notices that one of his children is missing and was left behind on the hike. And so then what does that father do at that moment? He leaves his family, right? He leaves his wife. He leaves his children to go find that one child that's lost. And there's some commentators that look at this account and say, well, that's clearly what Jesus is doing here. He's willing to leave, uh, you know, all of the other children or the rest of the family behind to go find this one that has wandered off from the family. But a lot of other commentators look at this and say, there's no way that a shepherd would do that. That's, that is completely absurd the idea that a shepherd, unless he was an, an incredibly foolish one, would ever leave his 99 sheep behind to go after one sheep like this. And so they're saying that this is illogical. This is a parable that is dealing with hyperbole or exaggeration. And let me just ask you, did Jesus frequently speak illogically or use hyperbole or exaggeration? Yeah, he did. He said plenty of, and by, by illogical, I just mean he said things that are um, somewhat absurd to us. He talked about plucking out your eye. He talked about cutting off your hand. He said, talked about hating your mother and father and your own children. He talked about a camel going through the eye of a needle. And so there's all these absurd things that he said. <clears throat> and some people look at this and they say, this is another instance of absurdity from our Lord. Now, they're not, they're not denying that Jesus said that, and they're not criticizing him for saying it, but they're looking at it, and they're applying the same um, view that they would to the other things that Jesus said that were exaggerated. Um, Because the commentators I saw or read said that a foolish shepherd would never endanger 99% of the flock for 1% of the flock. One author who is familiar with shepherding in the Middle East, he said this, I have never seen in Syria Palestine or Mesopotamia, a flock that was attended by a single shepherd. Two and even three shepherds are commonly employed. When one sheep is lost and the shepherd goes to seek it, the other shepherds watch the other sheep and take the flock home. So in other words, he's saying it's completely absurd that a shepherd would ever leave 99% of the flock to go after 1%. So here's the question. Why would Jesus use hyperbole here or exaggeration or present something illogical or so absurd? Well, the answer is for the same reason that he did every other time, which was to make a point, to really drive something home. And so then the next question is, well, what is the point? 
What, what is it that Jesus is trying to drive home, or what is he trying to communicate by presenting a scenario that everyone in the Middle East, even those who were not shepherds, would understand would never take place? Well, the answer is he's trying to communicate the value of that lost sheep. He's using an absurd or a logical situation to communicate the value of that one lost sheep to the shepherd. And this brings us to lesson one. Jesus seeks and saves the lost because they're valuable to him. Jesus seeks and saves the lost because they're valuable to him. And one reason I think this is important, or I wanted to stress this, is I don't, I don't know some of you personally, and those of you that I do know, I don't even know you that well. And by that, I don't mean I know you that intimately, and in that I don't know what you think about, I don't know how you feel about yourself, I don't know when you, you know, go to bed at night or when you wake up if you ever doubt your value. I've been surprised at times when people have been candid with me and kind of shared their hearts uh, as their pastor to hear things that I found particularly surprising. And one of the things that I've found Christians can wrestle with at times is their value. There's an amount of insecurity I suspect all of us carry to some extent, and uh, many of us carry to a larger extent. And so I really want to stress this, because I don't know if you doubt your value. I don't know if you wonder how valuable you are in your workplace or in your school. I don't know if you wonder how valuable you are even in your marriage or in your family. But I can tell you this. Even if you were not valuable to anyone else in the entire world, you are still valuable to Christ. When he saved you, you were that lost sheep that he was willing to pursue and go out to leaving the other 99 behind. Now, if you're unsaved, then you are that one lost sheep that Jesus would be willing to leave the other 99 sheep to find. Now, as I told you a couple weeks ago, and as I prayed when I began the sermon, I thought it was providential that we happened to reach this chapter right uh, leading up to the exchange. And I don't want us to miss the significance of this, because uh, another way to say it might be right before learning how better to reach the lost with the gospel, which is really what the exchange is all about, we are getting to see the premier place in Scripture revealing the Lord's heart for the lost. So I don't know if there's much else that could really burden us or prepare us to better share the gospel with others or with the lost than being able to see how Christ himself feels about the lost. So make sure we don't miss something. If lost sheep are that valuable to Jesus, do you see the application that this has for us? The idea is if lost sheep are that valuable to Christ and then we love Christ, then lost sheep are going to be valuable to us. For a moment, think about the people that might have the least value to you. And you don't, have to, you don't have to say anything aloud. I'll provide a couple examples. Maybe some others will come to mind. But just honestly, as, as sinful people, we have the potential to look down on others. There's individuals that we elevate. There's individuals that we, that we um, you know, minimize in our mind. We kind of we think that we're better than them, or we think that they have less value than us. We forgot that we all bear the image of God. And so there's these people, we see them, and it's kind of like, you know, maybe it's the homeless man who, who's standing on a corner, right? 
And <clears throat> I'm not, I'm not, I'll be the first to say I'm not defending that behavior of standing on a street corner asking for money. Um, I know that for every needy person, there's a, a number of frauds that are out there just trying to collect money like that. But whether they're truly needy or not, however we would view them, how much value do they have to Christ? The answer is they have the same value to Christ that you have to Christ. Think about drug addicts. Have you ever seen a drug addict and you can just tell the toll that the years of addiction have taken on them? I mean, it's, it's like physically, you can see how they've, they have been aged. I remember there was this one gentleman when we were in California, there was this addict, and <clears throat> he'd been around the church. We had prayed for him numerous times. Uh, he came around generally, generally when he wanted money, he'd kind of sit through a service to, to get some money, and then he'd leave. And, and one time the pastor was talking to him, and I got the impression that he, that he was probably in his 20s or 30s, and that really shocked me because I thought that he was in his 60s or 70s. He, he looked so old, you know, the, the amount of wear and tear that had been put on his body for his lifestyle and because of his addiction. And so when someone is so physically affected, they can almost look like they've lost value to us. Well, here's the thing. They have the same value to the shepherd that we have or that anyone else has. What about a prostitute? Again, I wouldn't be defending that action or the, or the wickedness of it. We, we understand how evil it is. Individuals who, um, you know, like professionally are, are ruining marriages or professionally are engaging in this evil behavior. Our minds can even go to Proverbs 7 and the, the harlot that tries to destroy, um, you know, this young man or effect, effectively does destroy this young man by her behavior. And so, if you, if you ever happen to, you know, um, encounter in promiscuous people or who have given their lives over to, to sexual activity like that, and then to, you know, to think so much less of them because of the sin they've engaged in and just assume that they must have less value. But here's the thing, in the Lord's eyes, what? They are as valuable. He has as much love for them. They are as precious and significant to him as as we are or as any person that we would imagine all made in the image of god all valuable to him some of these people might seem like they're beyond hope but then what christ seeks them he finds them the gospel changes them think of the language of first corinthians 6 11. such were some of you but you were what you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And we should remember that this is what happened when we became believers, especially you, you might not have the same appreciation for this if you were raised in a Christian home. Just the other day I was talking to someone uh, and I said, there's, a, there's not a whole lot of, of advantage to getting saved later in life. I mean, it's better to be saved later in life than not be saved at all. But anyone I've met who was saved later in life uh, wishes they'd have been saved earlier. And the number of things that they could have avoided, wh whether it be problems, wh whether it could be struggles, whether it could be diseases, whether it could be job losses, whatever the case, the broken relationships, the number of things that they reflect on that they could have been spared from had they become Christians earlier in life. But one of the nice things about becoming a Christian later in life is you recognize what you were before becoming a Christian. If that's all you've known is to grow up in a Christian home and perhaps by God's grace, the, the protection of your family or your parents 
has allowed you to not be exposed to much of that same wickedness out there that many people um, would give, you know, their right arm to have been able to avoid when they got saved later in life and had experienced earlier in life. But if you're saved later in life, you look back and, and you just see this contrast. You're just amazed by what God has done and how he has changed your affections and and the number of ways, I mean, it's one of the strongest evidences of salvation to be able to look and say, you know, there were these things that I desired, that I longed for before, and I had no heart for these, these things of the Lord. And then you became a Christian, and then suddenly what's attractive? Bible study is attractive. Worship is attractive. Being with Christians is attractive. And then suddenly what's unattractive? Being with non-Christians some of the music you used to listen to, some of the movies you used to watch, suddenly you can't listen to this stuff anymore. You can't watch these movies. You have this, you have this conviction, a wonderful sanctified conviction. And so we just need to remember that it's only by the grace of God that those people that we would think might have less value, that uh, we weren't them, that we didn't turn, turn out that way, or, that those saint, or, the, or just by God's grace that we were delivered from any of that because someone cared enough to seek us out and share the gospel with us. Look how Christ responds when he finds this lost sheep. Verse 5 says, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. John ten eleven, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, and there might not be a, another place in scripture that compares with him looking as much like that good loving shepherd as he does right here in these verses as he takes this lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, and then he carries it back to the flock. This verse, it has allusions to Isaiah's day, and, and particularly when the Israelites return from their captivity and God uses the language of faith. There are these things that you will see God describing himself doing in the Old Testament. It's, it's the language of faith. It's not to say that God did these things physically, but like this verse as an example, Isaiah 49, 22. Thus says the Lord God, they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. That's what this verse here in Luke is looking back on. But the idea is this, just as God's people in the Old Testament were physically carried back from their, act, from their captivity, right here, the imagery is of Jesus spiritually carrying us back from what? Our captivity to what? Not a, not a physical captivity to the Assyrians, not, not a physical exile in Babylon, but an even worse captivity. What, what, which captivity do you want to be delivered from? Do you want to be delivered from the captivity to the Assyrians and Babylonians, or do you want to be delivered from the captivity to sin and death? I mean, hands down, one is of an infinitely greater significance, and the idea is Christ picks you up and he puts you on his shoulders, and he carries you back from being lost. He carries you back from sin and death. I read that sometimes when a sheep was lost, that it would lie down helplessly on the ground, and it would refuse to move. And if the shepherd is going to save that sheep, then he literally does have to pick up the sheep like this. The sheep isn't going to move. To be candid with you, I almost pictured a, a shepherd uh, getting angry with the sheep, <laughs> you know, that won't move. But here he very tenderly, he bends down, he picks up this sheep, he puts it on his shoulders, and then he carries it back. 
Another time I read that a shepherd might have to do this would be when a sheep was too physically weak to return to the flock. Perhaps if it's been lost for some period of time, perhaps if it's been lacking food or lacking water. And so it's so weak. And so because of the very weak condition of this sheep, the shepherd has to pick it up and has to carry it. Now that is a perfect image for what Christ did for us. Did Christ save you when you became strong or did he save you when you were weak? Romans 5, 6, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Christ did not wait for us to get strong. I can remember one, one conversation I was having with some people. I actually, I remember two conversations like this. And both times, and I'm not, I'm not the greatest evangelist. I haven't shared the gospel as, as faithfully or as many times as I should have. But at least two times when I was sharing the gospel, I remember this common response from these people. And it sounded something like this. Basically, I'm not ready to become a Christian because I'm not strong enough, or I haven't grown enough, or I haven't matured enough, but, but after I am able to grow more, or after I'm stronger, or after I've been able to get these things out of my life, then I will become a Christian. Does anyone see the problem with this? That, that is completely backward. The idea is Christ saves us when we are weak. We come to Christ when we have these struggles or, or, or these weaknesses or these sins, and then we look to him to save us. We look to him to deliver us or to pick us up and put us on his shoulders. We don't expect to be able, in our weak state, to be able to overcome these difficulties on our own. Fortunately, the Lord does not expect us to reach a point of strength or spiritual maturity before becoming believers. Again, to help us prepare for the exchange, as we think about what Jesus is willing to do for the lost, I'm convicted to think about what I'm willing to do for the lost. If, if I see my Lord pictured as a shepherd who's willing to go out to this sheep, pick that sheep up, put that sheep on his shoulders, it makes me wonder what I'm willing to do for the lost. We should be willing to stretch ourselves. We should be willing to uh, talk to people, even if we're afraid to do so. We should be willing to pass out tracts. Pastor Nathan has regularly stood up here, shared about their availability for the tracks, the availability of tracts here at our church. We should be willing to um, keep them around with us, even if we don't feel like it. We should be willing to look for opportunities to share the gospel in conversations when we know unbelievers are present, even if it terrifies us. We should be willing to talk about Christ, even if we think people won't listen or even if we think people might ridicule us. At least one time, I was early in my Christian life, I was at the gym with a good friend of mine, and he was a, he was a particularly strong and, and muscular young man. And he, someone saw him that had clearly known him from before he was a Christian. Now, let me say it like this. Someone saw him who clearly didn't know he had become a Christian. Uh, this did not know my friend Nathan had become a Christian. And so we're at the gym, and Nathan and I were, were good friends who lived near each other, went to the gym together, spent a lot of time together, got to know each other very well. But the one thing we never talked about was our past. And generally, most people who become believers have no interest in talking. They want their past to stay as far in the past as possible. So I didn't have any real familiarity with Nathan and what uh, his life had been like before Christ. So we're at the gym, and this gentleman comes up, 
and kind of interrupts the workout and recognizes Nathan, and he starts talking to him and asking him, have you, you know, been going to these places or doing these things? And, and Nathan's just repeated, he says, no, 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 no. And answer no to all these questions. Is this, and the, the gentleman, who, I don't know who it was, but clearly becoming a little frustrated that Nathan isn't, doesn't seem to be interested in any of the things that he used to be interested in before. And then finally Nathan just says, hey, you know what? I, I've become a Christian and I don't do any of this stuff anymore. And you could just kind of tell by the way this guy was talking to him that that wasn't going to go over super well with him. Or in other words, you could tell that when Nathan tells this guy that he became a Christian, that that guy's not going to high-five him, right? Or tell or rejoice and celebrate and say, wow, it's such a wonderful thing. In fact, he kind of begins to mock him and ridicule him. But to me, early in my Christian life, to have been able to watch that was, uh, it was really pretty incredible. I still remember it vividly, just seeing him boldly share the gospel or share Christ with this guy in the middle of this gym when he had to know as well as I did that this, that this young man was going to mock his faith, was not going to have any pre- appreciation for him becoming a Christian. But when I read this parable and I see what our Lord is willing to do as a shepherd, it makes me convicted about what I should be willing to do for the lost. In verse 5, notice the words, when he has found it when he, the shepherd, has found that lost sheep, and this brings us to lesson two. Lesson two, Jesus seeks and finds the lost versus the lost seeking and finding him. Lesson two, Jesus seeks and finds the lost versus the lost seeking and finding him. Let me tell you the prevailing view of forgiveness in Jesus's day, because I think it can pretty much be the prevailing view of forgiveness in our day. The prevailing view of forgiveness in Jesus's day was basically this. God would forgive sinners who diligently what? Sought him. Worked hard to find him. Basically, God would forgive sinners who put forth enough effort to be forgiven or to be saved. And it was kind of like the theology I understood when I was Catholic, that you, you would make, um, what's the word? What is the word? Not uh, for your sins. When you're Catholic, you have to go out and say these Our Fathers and Hail Marys. What's that called? Does anyone remember? Penance. Thank you. That was going to really bother me if someone didn't blurt that out. But I'm serious. I'm not joking. It reminds me of the penance of the Catholic Church where you're going to work hard enough or do enough or say enough Our Fathers or Hail Marys or Rosaries that you're going to be forgiven. So we can still think this today. John MacArthur wrote, the religious leaders of the day taught that God would receive sinners who sought his forgiveness earnestly enough. David Guzik wrote, many rabbis believed that God received the sinner who came to him the right way. And the right way would be humble enough, hardworking enough, diligently enough, seeking intensely enough. But Jesus preaches these two parables, and what does he show us? Well, let me say it like this. Jesus preaches these two parables, and who's the diligent seeker? It is not the sinner. It is the shepherd, not the other way around. The lost being found versus the lost doing something to be found 
is such a strong theme, it shows up in almost every verse. Look in verse 4. Let's just do a brief survey here quickly. Verse 4, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine and go after the one that is lost, the end of verse 4, until he finds it. Verse 5, when he has found it. The middle of the second sentence in verse 6, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. The end of verse 8, she's searching her house for this coin. She seeks diligently until she finds it. The second sentence in verse 9, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. William Barclay said, a great Jewish scholar admitted that this is the one absolutely new thing which Jesus taught men about God, that he actually searched for them. What is one of the main reasons that sheep make such a perfect picture of the lost? They wander. They are unable to save themselves. They don't move from being lost to found in their own effort. They don't make their way back to the shepherd. The lost sheep doesn't save itself. It doesn't find the shepherd. Essentially, if the shepherd didn't take action, didn't take initiative, wasn't diligent, didn't pursue, the sheep would stay lost. Adam Clark said, No creature strays more easily than a sheep. None is more heedless and none so incapable of finding its way back to the flock when once it has gone astray. A sheep will bleat for the flock and still run on in an opposite direction to the place where the flock is. This I have often noticed. So if you sit here today as a believer, not as a lost person, there was a time that you were lost but you didn't suddenly realize you were lost and then, and then become found in your own effort or because you tried hard enough. And one reason that this is so important is so the, the credit or the glory goes where it belongs. Because what, what do we as sinful, prideful people want to do with our salvation? We want to take credit for it. <laughs> We want to, don't, don't we, aren't we tempted to want to take some of our salvation and assign it to ourselves? Isn't there some part of us that even when we recognize Christ died for us, we're, we're still holding on to that little bit we can credit to our wisdom or humility or maturity, some, some part that we can say was a result of our goodness us being different from others, and there's, there's, I mean, we're saved, they're not saved, and it must, it can't be because of, you know, God's goodness and grace. There's got to be some amount of it that's just because, to be candid, I'm better than them. <laughs> you know, I, there's, there's goodness in me that is not in, in these other people, and that's why I'm a Christian, and they're not. But it's the Lord that took the initiative. He pursued us. He receives the glory and the credit for it. If he hadn't done that, we would all still be lost. If you remember a few months ago, we looked at Mephibosheth, and I told you that he's this very dramatic picture of the gospel. 
Now, if you remember, when Mephibosheth was saved, or when Mephibosheth became a son of the king, how did Mephibosheth become a son of the king? The king sought Mephibosheth. The king found, literally, he had to find Mephibosheth because Mephibosheth was hiding when Saul was killed on the battlefield because Mephibosheth knew he, at that time, deserved to die because of his descendancy from Saul. So he's in hiding. David has to seek diligently to find him. And then he has to bring Mephibosheth back to him to make him a son. And these first two parables are like that. Now, I want to be thankful, and I hope you can be thankful as well, for what this reveals about God's love and mercy. Because I think we could appreciate if the thinking in Christ's day about forgiveness, or let's say the thinking, I believe, in the Catholic Church today, was true, we could still appreciate the forgiveness that God extends. We could appreciate a God who forgives sinners who do what? Diligently seek Him. Can't we? Couldn't we appreciate a God who forgave people that, that tried to be forgiven and put forth some effort And then maybe we'd even feel a little better about it because then we would believe that those people deserved to be forgiven because they would seem as though they had done something to merit it. But what about a God who tenderly searches for sinners of his own volition, sinners who are not searching to be saved, sinners who are not searching to be forgiven, and then he mercifully forgives them. That is extraordinary love. And this is what prompted God the Father to send His Son, and this is what prompted God the Son to obey His Father in coming from heaven to earth. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now, a few years ago, I shared a biblical principle with you, and it's worth repeating, and if I, please keep this in mind anytime you're kind of constructing your theology in your mind. You take indicatives or statements, build your theology with them, and look for narratives that support the indicatives. To make it real plain, you build your theology with indicatives supported by narratives, not the other way around. You don't look for narratives build your theology with those, and then support them with indicatives. Here are some indicatives. Indicatives are things that indicate something. They are statements. We're justified by grace through faith. It is appointed for man to die once and then to be judged. Jesus was born of a virgin. Those are indicatives. Those are statements. We have these indicatives, and then we build our theology with them, and then we allow narratives to support them. Well, the reason that I'm mentioning this is parables are like narratives. You don't want to build your theology with narratives or parables and then look for supporting indicatives because it can bring you to wrong conclusions. Have you ever heard someone drill too deeply into a parable and come away with the truth that the parable seems to present, but it's completely unbiblical? Can you look too deeply into a parable where you come away with something that's not true? Absolutely. Generally, parables have a, a plane or, or lesson on the surface 
And when you go down too deep, you can kind of come up with some weird stuff. So what you do is you look for the plain main points that the parable is teaching, and then you see if there's indicatives that communicate that same truth that you're considering. You find the supporting indicatives. Now, in this case, so here's the question, because I'm, we're talking about Christ seeking the lost from a parable, but do we have indicatives that support this? Are there indicatives in Scripture that teach us that Christ is the one who seeks the lost? Romans 3.11, how many people seek after God? Romans 3.11, there is none who seeks after God. This is a quote of Psalm 14.2 and Isaiah 53.2. So if nobody seeks after God, how do people get saved? God sought them. He took the initiative. He sought us first. 1 John 4.19, we love Christ because he first loved us. So if you sit here and you love Christ, it is only because Christ was the initiator in loving you first. John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise, raise them up on the last day. So interestingly, instead of thinking of finding Christ, we should actually think of being given to Christ by the Father. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So when we do come to the Father, it is only because he first drew us. John 6, 65, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Similar to John 6, 44, we can only come to Christ because the Father granted it first. Our pride wants to make us the initiators. Our pride wants to make us think we did something such as seeking God and finding him, but that unsaved man seeks God about as much as Mephibosheth sought David or about as much as that lost sheep seeks out the shepherd. Now, briefly take your minds back to this image of a shepherd finding a lost sheep. And I kind of mentioned earlier, and maybe this is just me projecting myself on that shepherd, but if I had to leave all of my, my flock and go look all over the countryside for this sheep that wanders off, and then I find this sheep and it won't budge and it's just it's there on the ground, you know, and I have to bend down, I have to pick it up, put it on my shoulders and I have to carry it back to the flock. Guess how I'm probably feeling about this sheep? About like I want to take it off my shoulders and throw it as far as I can throw it, right? In other words, I wouldn't be rejoicing. It wouldn't be this incredibly joyful moment for me. And that's something that stood out for me. Because look at verse 5 to see how it describes the shepherd doing all of this. He rejoices. And in verse 6, it gets even better. He comes home, he calls together his friends, his neighbors, and he says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So you're so valuable to Christ that not only does he rejoice when he finds you, he then calls together everyone around him, he calls together his friends, his neighbors, and he tells them to rejoice too. And this brings us to lesson three. Finding and saving the lost causes Jesus to rejoice. Finding and saving the lost causes Jesus to rejoice. If you write in your Bible, you can circle the words rejoicing and rejoice, and then you can draw a little line out from them, and you can put Matthew 13, 44, and then you can turn there in your Bible. So one more time, you can circle the words rejoicing and rejoice, draw a little line, write Matthew 13, 44, and then go ahead and turn to Matthew 13. We won't turn back to Luke. Matthew 
We're going to look at two short parables that are about that parallel, almost mirror some of the same teaching from Luke 15 about Christ seeking and finding us and the way that he feels when he does. I mean, just to tell you, I've, I've read these parables. I might have read these parables in Matthew 13 more times than I've read most anything else in Scripture. And every time I read them, I think they're some of the most powerful. I think these are really some of the most beautiful parables regarding the heart of Christ and what he was willing to do to find us and how he rejoiced when he did. With that in mind, look with me at verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And then for joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. So both of these parables, and you might see some of the similarity with Luke 15, are about a man who searches diligently, seeking, finds something that was so valuable to him, he's willing to give up everything to obtain it. Charles Spurgeon said of these two parables that they describe Jesus at the utmost cost to himself, buying the world to gain his church, which was the treasure which he desired. Now, if you write in your Bible, I'll give you four things to circle in these parables. In verse 44, you can circle the word treasure, and in verse 46, you can circle the words pearl of great price, and then you can write me. This is how Christ viewed you as a treasure, pearl of great price. In verse 44, circle the words a man, and in verse 45, circle the word merchant, and then write Jesus. He's the man, he's the merchant who's seeking and finding. Verse 44, circle the words, sells all that he has. And in verse 46, circle the words, sold all that he had. And write Philippians 2, 7 and 8, which fittingly uh, was shared during the communion devotion, that Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Would you say that Jesus sold everything to redeem you? Would you say that Jesus gave up everything to obtain you? Do, you? do you look at him? Do you see anything he kept back in redeeming you? Can you look at your Savior and say, you know what? There's this little bit he didn't give up for me. There's this little bit that he wasn't willing to part with to save me. I mean, when he hung on that cross, there was nothing left. That's why he's compared with a drink offering, because what's left with a drink offering? You pour it all out, it is completely empty. That's why he's compared with a burnt offering, because there's nothing left. Everything is consumed. He did, just like these verses say, sell all that he has, sold all that he had. In verse 44, circle the words, buys that field. In verse 46, circle the words, bought it, and write redeemed. You've got this merchant You've got this man who's seeking diligently, looking, and then finding this treasure that was so valuable to him that he buys it, he redeems it, and gives up everything to do so. Now, if you have a, I know you might have heard these parables taught differently. I know you could have a study Bible on your lap right now that says the exact opposite of what I just told you. You could have a study Bible that says you're the man who's seeking and finding. 
You're the one who gave up everything for Christ. You're not the hero. The Bible is not about what you've done for Christ. You didn't redeem him. He didn't need to be bought back from anything. Christ wasn't lost and he didn't need to be found. You didn't go after him and bring him back from some precarious state that he was in. In that interpretation, we're the man who finds the treasure. We sell everything. We're the merchant who finds a treasure and then buys it. And I disagree with this for two reasons. First, it makes us the heroes of the story. Suddenly, it's about what we have done for Christ. We're the initiators. We sought him. We found him. We sell everything. We buy the field and the pearl. And it's almost like you bought your salvation. It's almost like you redeemed Christ instead of him redeeming you. Now, the second reason that I reject that interpretation is this. I've said many times that the Old Testament prefigures or foreshadows New Testament truths or realities. There have probably been those times that you're reading the New Testament and an Old Testament account came to mind. Now, let me ask you, in verse 44, notice that Jesus didn't really care about the field that he bought. Why did Jesus buy the field in verse 44? Because of what came with the field. Do you see that? He only became interested in the field when he knew something came with the field. In this case, the field is the world, and what interested Jesus is you and me. He purchases the field or redeems the world not because of the field, but because of what came with it, us, his bride. Can you think of an example in the Old Testament of a man who had no interest in a field, but he was willing to buy the field because of what came with the field? Anything come to mind? That's Ruth and Boaz, isn't it? Do you remember Ruth became Boaz's bride? Boaz was willing to buy that field because of the treasure, Ruth, that came with it. And in that account, are you Boaz or are you Ruth? Are you the kinsman redeemer? No. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. Boaz is Christ. Boaz is the one who buys the field so that he can get the bride that comes with the field prefiguring these two parables. And in verse 44, notice the word joy. You're the treasure that Jesus found, and finding you brought him joy. And I just want to bring your minds back to Luke 15, because that's one of the common themes we'll probably talk more about next week. The shepherd finds his sheep, and when he does, he rejoices. He tells his friends to rejoice. And what happens when the woman finds her lost coin? What happens when the woman finds her lost coin? Does she just say, oh, man, it's nice to be done sweeping my whole house looking for this coin? No, she celebrates. She rejoices. She calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found the coin that I had lost. And so my point is, this isn't about a woman finding a coin, and it's not about a shepherd finding a sheep, and it's not about a man buying a field. It is about the way Christ feels toward you when he finds you and saves you. It is about the love that Christ has for you. It's even about Christ being willing to go to the cross and suffer all that he did because of his love for you. 
Because for Christ to save us, he had to do a lot more than pick you up and put you on his shoulders and carry you back to a flock. He had to hang on a cross. He had to be tortured. He had to experience an excruciating death. And it's hard to imagine, but he did this joyfully. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. That's how much he loves you. That's how valuable you are to him. He's willing to go to the cross joyfully to redeem you back from sin and death. If you have any questions about anything I've shared this morning, or maybe there was things you were supposed to circle, and I went too quickly, and you can circle anything, uh, everything, I'll be a friend after service. I'd consider it a privilege to answer any of your questions or pray with you. Father, we thank you so much for Christ and what he's willing to do for us. We thank you for that shepherd that goes after the, the lost sheep. We thank you that he is that merchant or that man that's looking for the, the treasure in the field and that he would find us and view us that way, Lord. We, we wouldn't see ourselves without value or we wouldn't see ourselves as a treasure, Lord, but we're thankful, I'm so thankful that Christ was willing to die for us and that he viewed us that way. And so I thank you that he would rejoice when he when he finds us. Thank you for these beautiful parables in Luke 15. I do pray over these weeks that we discuss them, that you will plant them in our hearts so that we can remember how your son feels about us. We thank you so much for what he's willing to do for us, Lord. Grow our, our faith and our love for him uh, week by week, especially as we're in these verses. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.